Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, no one knows us better than you do. Uh, no one is aware of our hearts and our needs and our failures and our faults better than you are. And yet you still invite us to come and to learn from you and be loved by you and be comforted by your word and be refreshed by your spirit. And so we eagerly come to you this morning desiring all of that and much more. So please give us this morning what we do not deserve and even more than we know to ask. Uh, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Uh, Seven Mile Road, we are calling a little bit of an audible this morning. Uh, this morning, our plan was to preach from Acts chapter 9, verses 32 to 43. That's uh, what we should have been doing. But on Friday afternoon, we decided to abandon that plan. And let me try to explain why. You see, uh, last Monday morning, I woke up knowing that this would be preaching week for me. And if you speak to my wife or to the other pastors that are here, they will tell you that preaching week is always a, a little bit of an interesting week for me. Now, if I were to be honest, uh, preaching week is a week that I don't look forward to at all. Uh, and that's because over the last five years, preaching week has often come with an incredible amount of anxiety for me. You see, in the last five years of pastoring a seven-mile road, uh, I will begin preaching typically like most pastors begin their preaching week. I'll spend hours upon hours studying the passage. I'll read every commentary that I can possibly get my hands on. I'll, I'll listen to multiple sermons that are being preached on the text. I'll take tons of notes. I'll, I'll think of illustrations. I'll write out outlines. I'll, I'll develop a manuscript. But then somewhere during the week, without fail, things will begin to go downhill. Because at some point during the week, anxiety starts flooding my heart, and anxiety starts filling up my mind, and it's crippling. It's a crippling feeling. Uh, soon enough, I'll be sitting in front of my uh, computer for hours upon hours, uh, and at the end of it, I will not have written down a single thing. Or, or, or soon enough, physically, I'll be at home with my family, but mentally, I'm sort of checked out, right? I, I'm, I'm just sitting there consumed with thoughts about how to get this sermon done. You see, this week was no different. By Friday afternoon, after putting in hours and hours of work, I basically had nothing to show for it. I was overwhelmed. I was discouraged. And the anxiety only continued to increase as I got to that point. So at this point, I was feeling pretty desperate. Uh, so I decided to call an older pastor friend of ours and try to explain to him what I was going through. So we talked for a while. Uh, on the phone, and he listened, and he empathized, and, and he tried to encourage me as much as he could. But in the process, he also began to unearth some things that I realized that I wasn't really seeing clearly. You see, over the course of this conversation, I, I began to realize something about my anxiety. I began to realize that my anxiety wasn't just some sort of random thing, that it, it wasn't just an anxiety that comes from having to meet a deadline, or it wasn't just an anxiety that comes from uh, having to speak in public. Now, over the course of this conversation, I began to realize that the heart of my anxiety was actually something much more deeper than that. I began to realize that when you drill deep down into my heart, that at the heart of my anxiety was my need for approval. Or if I could say it more bluntly, at the heart of my anxiety 
was my need to be approved by each and every single one of you. You see, as I was talking with my friend, I realized that I was prepping, as I was prepping week after week to be able to preach these sermons, I wasn't just trying to create sermons that are biblically faithful, though I am, and I wasn't just trying to preach sermons that are helpful and applicable, though I am. No, I realized that I was, as I was prepping to preach, I was also placing upon myself this immense pressure to create sermons that would impress you, to create sermons that would win your approval, sermons that would make you say, you know, Pastor Binu is so thoughtful, or that he's so funny, or that he's so engaging, or that he's so helpful, or he's so fill-in-the-blank, whatever it might be. I was hoping that as I stepped down from the pulpit, that those 30 to 40 minutes would be enough to gain your approval, your love, and your admiration. That's what I'm hoping for. And some of my wrote, I can't explain to you how exhausting of a life that is to live. It's a really exhausting way to live. And I wonder if God finally allowed me to break down under the weight of that pressure this Friday. That through that phone call, I more clearly realized the extent of my struggle for approval. You see, as I was getting off the phone with my friend on that day, after being freshly convicted of this realization, he said to me, he said, Binu, um, listen, what if you skipped preaching Acts 9 this Sunday? Tell your congregation to go read a commentary or something, right? Do that. But instead, this week, why don't you share what, what God has, has, has you in, where God has you in your life right now? Because I wonder if others in your church can relate to what you're going through. So Pastor Jay and I spoke quickly for that, and, and we decided to do just that. And so Seven Mile Road, if you want to learn about Acts 9, you should read a commentary. <laughs> I have commentaries I can give you. They're great. But this morning... I want to share what God has been intensely teaching me over the last 48 hours. What he has been drilling down into my heart over the last two days. Because I really do wonder if some of you can relate to my struggle. I wonder if some of you knows what it looks like to struggle with the need for man's approval. I'm guessing that for you it probably doesn't come in the form of a, a sermon. No, maybe for you it's something else. Maybe you look for man's approval through things like your education or your occupation. Or maybe for you it's through your income or your possessions. Or, or maybe for you it's through things like how you look or through your family. Or maybe you're here and you're not even aware of whether this is even a struggle of yours or not. And if that's true, maybe these questions by an author named Ed Welch can be of help to you. I'm gonna read these questions out. I want you to listen and, and try really hard to answer as honestly as you can as he asks these questions. Listen to what he says. He asks, do you crave compliments? Do you ever fish for compliments or maybe even say something derogatory about yourself in the hopes that someone else might correct you? Do you spend your whole life managing your reputation and managing people's impression of you? Do you try really hard to know and shape what others think of you? Are you overly concerned with how you look, how much you weigh, or how you're dressed? Are you a people pleaser? Do you have a hard time saying no to people? Do you constantly bend over backwards so that others will never be disappointed in you? Do you compare yourself to others and you feel really good about yourself when you win 
or you feel really filled with envy or depression when you lose. You see, if you answered yes to any of these questions, then maybe you are an approval junkie like I am. If you answered yes to any of these questions, maybe you are addicted to man's approval just like I am. Because you see, what you're ultimately doing is that you are defining yourself by someone else's opinion. You're defining your identity and your worth by someone else's opinion. You have become a slave to other people's thoughts about you. And my friend, in the last 48 hours, I'm beginning to realize that this is a horrible way to live. It's a horrible way to live. It is absolute slavery. The need for approval will own us and it will control us. It will dictate the directions of your life and redirect the affections of your heart. It will tell you how to think. It will tell you how to act. It will even tell you what you should wear. That's what it will do. So the first question we should be asking ourselves is this. How did this even happen, right? Why do we struggle so badly with this? What is it about human nature that causes us to struggle this way? Well, listen to how one pastor explains it. He says this. He says, we are glory-hungry people. We want glory. We want greatness. We want significance. We want weight. We want approval. We want commendation. That's the normal bent of the human heart. Now, here's the thing. And it's going to sound contrarian, but God made you for such things. Hear that. You were made for glory. You were made for weight. You were made for significance. And you were made for approval. Look at, your first, look at our first parents. God put them in the garden. And what is the verdict that he says over them? This is very good. Or Psalm 8 says that when God created Adam and Eve, he made them a little lower than the angels. And he crowned them with the glory and honor. God created mankind and gives them commendation, crowns them with glory and honor, gives them approval, gives them acclaim, and he says he's pleased with them. You and I are made for this. Samaro, did you catch that? Do you know why you and I are so hungry for approval? Do you know why you and I so desire glory and honor? It's, it's not an accident at all. No, instead, it's because this is exactly how God created us. When, when mankind was created, God spoke his approval over us. He, he created mankind, and he said, this is very good. When God created mankind, he gave us, he placed on our head a crown of glory and honor. Psalm 8 says that he made us a little bit lower than the angels. When God created us, we had been given the very things that we now find ourselves hungering for, right? We had glory. We had affirmation. We had approval. We had acceptance. We were commended by God. But here's the thing. In the garden, in the garden, we lost it all. You see, sin entered into the scene, and it stripped Adam and Eve of the glory of God. And now, instead of being people who are wearing the crown of glory and honor, now they stood there guilty and naked. And so what do they do? Well, they tried to cover themselves up, right? They pulled together fig leaves, but those fig leaves began to wither. So they tried it again. They pulled together more fig leaves, but it withered again. And ever since that day, mankind has been on this endless pursuit to try to cover themselves up in one way or another, to try to win back this glory that they have lost because of the fall. 
Brothers and sisters, I want to say to you, this is our situation. You see, we are born sinners who were created and meant for glory, but we lost it because of our sin. And so what are we doing? From day one, we've been trying to do whatever we can to get it back. And so some of us are trying to get it back through our beauty. Or some of us are trying to get it back through our wealth. If I just had this. And some of us are trying to get it back through sermons. But all the while, we're forgetting that these are just fig leaves. They're just fig leaves. They're, they cover us up for a moment, but without fail, they will wither. It always does. And so the obvious question that we should be asking ourselves is, what can possibly set us free from this slavery that we find ourselves in to man's approval? Well, maybe it doesn't surprise you to hear that our only hope, our only hope is found in the gospel. Because it always is. Our, that's our only hope. You know, if you belong to this church, you know that we often say that at the, the heart of every one of our struggles, right, at the root of every one of our sins is unbelief. And that is no less true for approval junkies like you and me, right? It's no less true. You see, the truth is that underneath the things that you and I do are false beliefs. Our actions are not random, right? Our pursuits are not arbitrary. No, they reflect what we really believe about ourselves and about our God. And so this morning, I want to share with you simply, real simply, I want to share with you just two simple things that God has helped me to see in the last 48 hours. I, I want to share two simple differences between what my heart tends to believe and what the gospel says is true. That's all I want to do. Listen, there's a, there's a million gospel truths that we can be preaching to ourselves this morning, a million of them. There's a million truths that you and I need to hear and believe. But this morning, we're just going to consider one. We're going to consider one verse. And we're going to ask God that he would use this verse to drill down the gospel deep down into the crevices of our hearts so that we would believe it. And that verse is this. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're going to ask God to use this verse to correct and redirect the beliefs of our hearts. So what's the, what's the first false belief that my heart tries to convince me of? Well, it's this. My heart tries to convince me that man will only love me when I'm at my best. That man will only love me when I'm at my best. You know, there's a scene in, in Rocky where Rocky Balboa is sitting at the edge of his bed. It, and it's the night before a, a big fight. And so he's sitting up and he's kind of just putting his hands through his hair. And, and Adrian is lying beside him. And she wakes up and she sees that he's awake. And, and so Rocky says immediately, he says, if I could just go 15 rounds with the champ. Because you see, at that point, until that point, no one had gone 15 rounds with the champ. But Rocky says, listen, if I can just go 15 rounds with the champ, then I'll know that I'm not a bum. If I can just go 15 rounds with the champ, then I'll know that I'm not a bum. You see, I think a lot of us live our lives that way. That's exactly how we live our lives. We're constantly working to try to prove our worth to ourselves and to others. 
we're doing all that we can to try to have others believe that we really do matter, that we really do count, that, that we really do have significance. And so we will really work hard to try to put our best foot forward, to make ourselves look and seem really impressive. Because you and I are convinced that the only way that we can get them to love us is that. That that's the only way that they will think that I am worthwhile. And you see, if I were to be honest, that's exactly what I believe when it comes to my preaching. That's what I'm beginning to understand. You see, when it comes down to it, I believe that the quality of my sermon is what ultimately provides me with my value and worth. And what that means is that if that's true, if I really believe that, then it doesn't leave me any room. It doesn't leave me any room for mistakes, right? At that point, every word of my sermon counts. And it creates in, this, in my mind this thought, this intense pressure to try to have the most profound thoughts or to have the most funniest stories or to have the most memorable illustrations. Because you see, in my mind, so much is riding on those 30 to 40 minutes. Because what my heart genuinely believes is that the feedback from a sermon is the difference between being valuable or worthless. That's what I believe. That the feedback from a sermon will make all the difference between whether I'm valuable or I'm worthless. Deep down, that's what I truly believe. That until, unless I get a home run from this pulpit, unless I do that, I will have no value or no worth. I will not have done enough to earn your affection. Now listen, I know when you hear that, it may sound a little bit exaggerated, right? It may sound like, I, I feel like you're saying too much. It's really not like that. But I really do think it is. I think you too know what that's like. To have your looks matter that much. So that you literally can't have a moment off. Your worst nightmare is that someone would see you in a, in a horrible state. It matters that much. Or to have your job title feel that crucial to you. That your worst nightmare is if you no longer have that job. If you got a demotion, what will happen? Because you see, you have convinced yourself that if you don't have those things, in all honesty, what are you worth? What are you possibly worth? And so my heart has convinced me that man will only love me when I am at my best. And that's why I'm asking God to help me believe the gospel truth of Romans 5.8. Because you see, what the gospel tells me is something completely different. When my heart tries to convince me that man will only love me when I'm at my best, the gospel tells me that God chose to love me when I was at my worst. God chose to love me when I was at my worst. Listen again to what Romans 5.8 says. He says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That, that's how God found us, friends. That's where God found us, steeped in sin, unworthy, uh, unlovable. In fact, the Bible has a lot to say about how it is that God has found us. Ephesians 2 says that we were found dead in our sins and trespasses. Romans 3 says that, that we had all turned aside and become worthless. Isaiah 64 says that even our best efforts were like filthy rags before God. Psalm 51 says that we came from our mother's womb in sin. Romans 7 says that nothing good dwells in our flesh. Jeremiah 17 says that our hearts were full of deceit. 
John 8 says that we were slaves to sin. Titus 3 says that we were foolish and disobedient and addicted to our passions and our pleasures. And the list goes on and on and on and on. Seven Mile Road, that's how God found us. That's how God found us at our worst. When, when there was nothing lovable about us is where he found us. And you see, in our most unlovable state, he chose to love us by sending his son to die on the cross on our behalf. In our most unlovable state, he chose to love us. You see, do you want to see how unlovable you were? All you need to do is look at the cross. But do you also want to see how deeply loved you are? All you need to do is look at the cross again. God gave up his most valuable possession for the most unlovable people in the world. Now tell me, how much more loved can you and I be? How much more loved can you and I be? And if we truly believe that, then why would we work so hard to receive from man that which we already have received from God? Why would we do that? That's why we need help. We need God to help us be convinced that Romans 5.8 really is true. So that when my heart tries to convince me again this afternoon that man will only love me when I'm at my best, the gospel will correct and remind me that God chose to love me when I was at my worst. Here's my second and final false belief that my heart constantly tries to convince me of. You see, my heart also tries to convince me that my value and worth are ever-changing based on my performance. That my value and worth are ever-changing based on my performance. In other words, I believe that I'm only as good as my last sermon. That's what I believe. I'm, I believe that, that my value and worth is just sort of constantly going up and down based on my performance on any given hour or any given weak. I'm, I'm convinced that my value or worth can be directly correlated to how people feel about me the moment after I preach. So if I walk away from this pulpit and I knock it out of the park, or if people come, after, come up to me afterwards and tell me how helpful it was or how much they needed to hear that, well then, well then I'm great again. I'm great. And I believe that I have value and worth again. And I feel good, at least for a few hours. But if I walk away from this pulpit and I preach a dud, or if people are staring at the space the entire time while I'm up here, or if afterwards, if no one has anything to say, well, then I guess I stink again. I guess I'm worthless again. And my only hope is to try to get another chance at the pulpit and to try to do better next time, to gain back the value and worth that I couldn't get the last time. By the way, I know that I just really created some awkward moments after this sermon. I realized that. <laughs> no pressure, I promise. But church, what a draining way that is to live. It's a roller coaster of a life. It's a roller coaster of a life because not only is your value and worth based on your performance, your value and worth is also based on people's opinions and perceptions of you, which can change every single day. It can actually change every single hour. There's probably no place where I can see that more clearly than in sports, right? If you've been following the NBA playoffs at all, um, 
you can't help but feel like we are describing LeBron James's life down to the T, right? This is what his life looks like. Because you see, when he comes back and wins the series against the Celtics, well, then he's definitely better than Jordan, right? No doubt about it. Look what he did. He's definitely better than Jordan. But then when he gets swept in the finals against the Warriors, man, he is such a bum. He's the ultimate choke artist. He does it every time. Or, or when he produces the most triple doubles in NBA final history, okay, fine. You know what? He definitely is the GOAT, right? He is the greatest player of all time. But when he plays the last three games with a broken hand, gosh, he is such a selfish player, right? Why would he do that? Why would he risk everything for that? What an absolute roller coaster of a life to live. And you see, here's the thing. For approval junkies like us, this is exactly what our lives can look like. You and I can go from feeling great about ourselves to feeling horrible about ourselves in the matter of five minutes. That's what we feel like. A word of compliment can take us soaring to the highest of heavens. But a word of critique can send us down to the pits of hell. That's how we are. A, a like on Facebook. A like on Facebook. I know. A like on Facebook can make me feel like I'm worth a million bucks. But an unflattering picture of me or of us on social media can feel like we lost all value in life. That's how we are. You see, our, our, our minds and our hearts can be that fickle. The, the smallest, most insignificant thing can be enough for us to either love us or to hate ourselves at any given moment. Or even worse, for us to sense that others love us or hate us at any given moment. And that's the roller coaster life that we're living in. And that's why I'm asking God to help us believe the gospel truth of Romans 5, 8. Because you see, when my heart has convinced me that my value and worth are ever-changing based on my performance, the gospel tells me something completely different. The gospel proclaims instead that my value and worth are permanently determined by Christ's performance on the cross. It's permanently determined by Christ's performance on the cross. You see, Romans 5, 8 tells us that Christ died for us. Brothers and sisters, you need to understand, Christ died for us, and he died for us once and for all. You see, on the cross, there was this great exchange that had happened, right? On the cross, Christ, who was full of glory, Christ, who was full of glory, was now covered in our sin. And at the same time, simultaneously, we who were full of sin were now covered in his glory. You see, at the cross, God restored to us the glory that we lost at the fall that we just talked about a little while ago, right? He restored to us the, the glory that we lost at the fall. At the cross, he once again provided us with approval and acceptance and honor and righteousness that comes from God. And here's the thing. That great exchange, that great restoration, it's a permanent work. It's a permanent work. It's a once and for all work. It's true of us on our best day, and it, it's still true of us. It's no less true of us on our worst day. You see, now and forevermore, we can stand before the God of the universe, and he will graciously say, he will graciously say, Minnie, you are deeply loved. You are deeply loved, and that is forever going to be true. He's going to say, Joe, you are fully accepted. 
you are fully accepted. And that's forever going to be true. He's going to say, Sergio, you have unchanging value and worth. Unchanging. It doesn't fluctuate. And that's eternally going to be true. You see, you were never loved by God and declared worthy because of your performance in the first place. That's not how it works. No, you were loved by God and declared worthy because of Christ's performance, because of the permanent work of Christ on the cross. And that work was once and for all. That work will never happen again. It doesn't need to because the results of that work are going to be forever true. Semar wrote, if you have trusted in Christ, your value and worth have been permanently determined by God. Permanently. There will be no change to how he sees you on your best day or on your worst day. It's forever true. Let me ask you, if I truly believed that, then why would I chase this roller coaster of life to try to receive from man that which I have already permanently been given through Christ on the cross. But I do. But we do, because we're slow to believe the gospel, and that's why we need help. We need God to help us to be convinced that Romans 5.8 really is true. I'm going to close on just one last note. I'm probably stating the obvious, but it's probably just important to say. You know, we're not going to leave here this morning suddenly and, and magically freed from the need of, of approval. Even my last 48 hours has not cured me of, of this problem. There's still a ton of work to do. But maybe this morning, to use Tim Keller's soda machine analogy that we he use here all the time, maybe there is some truths that are lodged in your head this morning that needs to travel down deeper into your heart and maybe this morning, God is just doing the work of banging on your head so that it will start dropping down, so that what you know with your mind will start to be believed with your heart. Maybe today is just one more step towards you believing the gospel more than your false beliefs, that you have already received from God what you are so desperately trying to receive from man, that you would believe that. Today, he would help you and I to believe that God really chose to love us even when we were at our worst. And that our worth is not constantly changing, but that it's been permanently determined by Christ's performance on the cross. But I know it. It'll take time. It'll take work. I'll forget again. I won't believe that again. I'll need to be convinced of it again. I'll need to be reminded of the gospel again. I'll need to make phone calls to people again. And that's why if you're an approval junkie like me, we should go to God together. And we should say like that man did in the Bible, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. We should do that. Let's pray. Lord, we believe uh, and so please help our unbelief. Even as we gather here today, even as we're sitting here, Lord, you know our hearts better than we know it ourselves. You know how much we struggle with the need to be impressive, to gain others' approval, to find self-worth and our identity through the things that we do. 
you know how much we cling to people's opinions of us. How we can even constantly fluctuate how, on how we feel about ourselves. Lord, we confess that we don't see things clearly. We don't feel things rightly. Our hearts are consumed with false beliefs. And that's why we're grateful for Jesus. We're so grateful that he chose to die for us when we were at our worst. We're grateful that his approval of us isn't constantly changing based on our performance. He loves us the same on our best day and on our worst day. We thank you that through the cross, we really are loved, accepted, and approved, and given glory. That's eternally true of us. That Jesus has already given us everything that we find ourselves looking to others for. Lord, we believe, please help our unbelief. Please ingrain this gospel deeper into the crevices of our heart so that the love of Christ would seem even more real than our need for approval. We can't do this on our own, so we're asking help from you. We know that you delight to help us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.